Hope you'll take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one near you. I hope you'll grab it and follow along. Matthew 6. As we start, I want to go ahead and share with you three commands of Jesus that we're going to see in our passage this morning. Three commands, and every one of them is a command that we need to hear and consider. First, the first command we see in our text is this, do not be anxious. That's for me this morning, okay? Then a few verses later, we get the second command. It's this, do not be anxious. All right? Then towards the end of the passage, he gives third command. It's this, do not, you're you're catching on? Don't be anxious. Not technically three commands, but one command given three times, which makes me think this. First, Jesus really wanted us to hear this. And second, he knows the temptations of our hearts. Jesus knows our weaknesses. Because worry is one of those things that plagues all of us, isn't it? One of those things that probably every one of us at some level or degree has to battle against. And we could spend the rest of our time this morning making a list of all the things that we're worried about. There are things that keep you up at night, probably. We worry about how long our savings will last and what we will do if it runs out. We worry about the tires on the car and whether or not they can make just that one more trip. We worry about germs and viruses and what will happen if we get sick or if our kids get sick or if our parents get sick. We worry about our job, how secure it is, how long it'll last and what will happen if it goes away. Am I employable anywhere else? We worry about our kids in a new school year. We, we hope, we worry. Am I doing what's best for them? Is where I have them, is what I'm doing for them today really what they're going to need? Or am I messing it up? We worry about the past and about things we wish we would have done or not done. We worry about the future. We fear what will happen in the months and years and even decades to come. It's a a long list, isn't it? Maybe I've not even hit yours yet. There's economic worries, political worries, societal worries. It's a long list and a varied list. You can be tempted to worry about big things, small things, things that matter, and things that don't matter at all. And, And maybe I'm just revealing my own heart because, man, some of us are more prone to this than others. It is a common struggle. I think what Jesus says in Matthew 6 when he repeats this command three times, it's an acknowledgement that we need to hear this. And I think the repetition, it's meant to get our attention. It's something he wants us to hear because we may think of worry as one of those those, those small sins. But I would suggest that the, the amount of time Jesus gives to this reminds us that this is something that's significant. It's not to be taken lightly because it says something significant about our hearts. It says something significant about who we trust. 
But here's the good news. Jesus does not simply acknowledge the problem. And he doesn't simply say, stop worrying. But he helps us see the cure, the solution, the answer. And I'll go ahead and take you to the end. What Jesus wants us to know is this, that the answer for anxiety is God himself. The solution for worry is a recognition of who God is and of his care for us. So that's where we're headed. He's helping us see how we can be set free from anxiety and that we can replace anxiety with a steadfast hope and confidence in God. That's where we're headed. But before I read the text, I want you to consider that this isn't the start of a book. And this is very much connected to where we were last week. Last week, we talked about the temptation to think too much about the things of earth. If you have your Bible open, you can look back at that previous passage. Go back to verse 19. Jesus said this. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So we talked last week about the temptation to be overly focused on earthly things. The temptation to love the things of earth so much and to give our attention to them so much that we don't see God clearly. There's that temptation we saw in verses 22 and 23 to focus on the things of earth more than we focus on God. And then in verse 24, we can give our allegiance to the things of earth and allow them to be our master instead of serving God alone. And now as we keep reading, there's a therefore at the beginning of our section. This, this all goes together. It's this, the other side of the same coin, really. On the one hand, we can elevate the things of earth and accumulate... On the other hand, we can elevate the things of earth and become anxious. In both cases, we're thinking too much of the things of earth. In both cases, we've placed more emphasis on what the things of earth can provide than we have on God and what he provides. Do you see that connection? Laying up treasures in heaven and the heart that goes with that, it's very similar to the heart that's scared of what we may lose. So it's a continuation. We're in Matthew chapter 6, and I'll read for us verses 25 to 34. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, and they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But... 
If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. We ask that God will speak to us through the reading and preaching of his word. Before we jump in, it's probably worth saying this, that, that there's a difference between worry and wise planning. There's a difference between anxiety and advanced preparation. Anxiety is more than careful consideration of what's coming. So what we should not hear Jesus saying is, don't think or don't plan or don't prepare. What he's talking about here is fear a fear that grips us and consumes us, a fear that leads to restlessness, a fear that consumes our thoughts. And I think for us, we know once it gets going, it's hard to stop. But thankfully, Jesus doesn't simply say, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. He doesn't say, don't worry, be happy. He doesn't just come out and tell us to move on. No, Jesus takes 10 verses and he helps us. He uses different illustrations, comes from different angles. And when we boil it all down, here's what Jesus is doing in this text. He's taking our eyes and he's lifting them up. He's directing our gaze to God. This is something I think about a lot. That so many of our struggles, the things that we all struggle with, so much of it comes down to this. That our view of God is too small. That our thoughts of God are too few and too limited. Because it's, it's easy to, to look around us and to see the things around us as huge. And at the same time, to think God is very small. We fail to see God rightly. And instead of giving our attention to him and his care for us, we give our attention to the things that we can't control. And this is the temptation that Jesus is warning us against. He's warning us against being consumed with, with worry or anxiety. And there's thousands of things that we could bring to the table and say that we are tempted to worry about. But Jesus, he focuses on basic necessities We worry about what we are going to eat or drink or worry about what we're going to wear. And what he wants to help us see is that we can trust him with the most basic necessities of life and, and recognize that this, this expands out. Supplies to all the things that we may be tempted to worry about. Look at verse 25 again. He says, therefore I tell you, don't be anxious about your life what you'll eat or what you'll drink, about your body, what you'll put on. 
Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? I, I spent a long time with this verse this week. It's one of those passages you think, the sermon's going to write itself, right? Until you slow down. And I start asking the question, what, is, what does this phrase mean? Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And when I first came to it, it seemed to me that Jesus was saying, you worry about small things. You worry about things that don't matter. Life matters, but, but food and, and clothes, those are things not to worry about. That's how I read it first. But I don't think that was right. Because he's not saying food's not important. He's about to tell us God provides food. And he's not telling us clothes aren't important, so he's not minimizing these things. What he's doing is he's helping us see something that's true about worry. Because when, when we worry, we tend to take one part of life and act like it's the whole. Right? Like that one thing is bigger than all the rest. And it distorts our perspective. So Jesus says, isn't there more to life than food? Which isn't to minimize food and clothing, but he's helping us to, to zoom out. But that's not all there is here. And I was helped by a few friends that I read this week who helped me to see that this is an argument from the greater to the lesser. Again, he's not saying food and clothing are insignificant. He's saying God cares about all of life. He cares about the whole of our lives. So if we say God is over all, guess what that includes? Food and clothes, right? Is not life more than food and clothes? And if we trust God with the whole, then we can trust him with the parts. The God who has given us life and whom we trust with life can be trusted with all the details of life. And we can stop right there and have plenty to work with for the rest of our time together this morning. That there is not a detail of your life over which God is not sovereign. You can trust him with all of it. He says we can trust him with food and clothing. These are the two examples he gives. And they're two examples that remind us of how deeply God cares for his people. He says, let me show you the way God cares. And he does it like this. He says, look at the birds. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. What we have here is God-ordained bird-watching, Paula. God-ordained. He says, look at them. Study them. Con consider them. Don't miss what God is doing with the birds. In particular, this, that they're not going hungry. And the reason they don't go hungry is because the God who made them also ordained the way in which they would be fed. He, he, he knew how it would happen. And for the birds, they don't plan days, weeks, or months in advance. They don't go out each day to earn food. No. They don't plant seeds. They don't wait for a harvest. They don't gather a harvest and store it for later. No, they go out and they find the food that God has already prepared for them. We could tease out the fact that they go out and they get it. But the point Jesus is making is that they 
are fed. God has provided for them and they can trust it. But then Jesus makes this. He continues this argument from the the lesser to the greater. Verse 26, are you not of more value than they? What we know is that God has made us different from birds or even the greatest of the animals. He's made us in his image. He's given us eternal souls. To God, we are in fact of more value than birds. But here's here's what worry does. Worry makes us think I'm alone. I'm forgotten. I'm insignificant. Worry tells us if God cared, he would help. But what Jesus is telling us here is that God does care. He's given you life. He's called you his children, and he cares for you more than the birds. And if the birds can trust him, you can trust him even more. I was thinking about the passage in 1 Peter chapter 5. Peter says this. He says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. What's interesting here is Peter makes a connection between pride and worry. The proud person thinks he has it all figured out. The humble person trusts God. He says, humble yourselves. Stop thinking so much of yourself. Humble yourself and then give your anxieties to God. You know, before we can trust God, we have to be humble enough to come to him. Cast all your anxieties on him. Why? Hear this, church. He cares for you. He cares for you. Look at the birds. And he loves you more than them. And if you need more proof outside of creation and being made in his image, look to the cross. Paul tells us God shows his love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 3, what kind of love has the Father given to us that we should be called the children of God and so we are. This is how much God loves us that he sent his son to die so that we could be saved. With that in view, how could we doubt it? Peter says, cast your cares, your anxieties on him. He, he cares for you. Jesus says, he cares for the birds and you're more valuable than they are to him. But our nature is to forget or to not believe his love, his care, his provision. So we worry. And we, we may never actually get there logically, but it's almost this sense that I can't let this go because if I stop worrying about it, then nothing's going to change. When in fact, the worrying isn't accomplishing anything. And Jesus says that right here in verse 27. Which of you, raise your hand, which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? If you're reading to King James, it's going to talk about adding stature. It, it's, an, it's a word that can be used either way, about height or length. 
The point is, you can't worry enough to make yourself taller or to extend your life. And I think there's, there's two layers to this verse. The first part is just the simple logic of it. That the act of anxiety is useless. It doesn't accomplish anything. You can be the best worrier in the world. And you can put all your worrying power on the fact that you are going to die. And you can lose sleep and skip meals thinking about your mortality. Give all your attention to worrying about the length of your life. And yet, for all that worry, you will never extend your life by a moment. And in fact, if medicine, the medical profession is right, you're shortening it. Okay? None of us can worry enough to accomplish anything. Jesus says, which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? And I think that's the first layer. It's just logic. But I think there's another level to this verse, and it's, it's implied that while you can't control the length of your life, there is one who can. Remember, Jesus is raising our gaze. He's raising our eyes to see God, to recognize that God is in control. Your anxiety can't change things, but God can change things. And God can be trusted. Look at the birds. And then we have another example. He says, consider the lilies, the flowers. Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. So we, we go from bird watching to flower gazing. What, what do we call this? I don't know. Taking time to look intently at flowers. And we hear the saying, you should stop and smell the roses. And it's probably true. We usually pass by too quickly. We miss the incredible creation that's growing in the ground right next to us. The brunettes shared some flowers with us from their garden. And, you know, it's funny. When, when a flower is sitting on your countertop, you're a lot more likely to sit down and look at it than if it's just out in the yard. So I had time there while I was snacking to, to look at these flowers a few weeks ago. And beautifully symmetric and incredible colors. And to think that God designed a seed that would sprout and then a stalk that would grow and then a flower that would bloom and it would be so perfect, right? Symmetrical and colorful Dressed in a way that a king could not compare. That's what he says. I tell you, even Solomon, great King Solomon, in, in all his glory, with all those wives he had to help him get dressed, right? None of them was arrayed like, he was never arrayed like one of these. But what thought does a flower give to being beautiful? They don't get up in the morning and decide what to wear. God has clothed them. And what are flowers compared to the people of God? Grass and flowers are beautiful while they last, but they are temporary. Summer heat is proving it, isn't it? They're temporary. Jesus says in verse 30, If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? 
God created grass and flowers, and he makes them beautiful for the time they last, but they don't last. And when grass dies, we don't think twice about throwing it in the fire to create heat. We'll use it. We'll burn it. And then there's us, made in the image of God, made to live forever. And not only that, but God sent his son to die for us. And he has promised that he'll be with us and he'll care for us. You are worth so much more than the flowers. And yet, we worry. And then Jesus says something that punches me in the gut. He says, friend, your worry, it's a sign of your small faith. Oh, you of of little faith. And again, what he's doing is lifting up our gaze. He wants us to see God for who he is. He wants us to see the power and sovereignty of God. He's saying, if you believed all the things you sang on Sunday, you wouldn't be so fearful of what happens on Monday. We have small faith when we question God and his care for us. Now, will his care for us always look like what we think it should? No. But consider this, that his plan is accomplishing his purposes. So even if we were to starve to death, it's not that he has failed us, but that he has taken us exactly where he intends to take us. Like I said earlier, Jesus doesn't simply say stop worrying. He gives us reasons, reasons why we don't have to live in anxiety. He's building this command on something solid. He wants us to know that we have a God who sees and knows and cares. And the question is, do we trust him? And let me just, an aside. Maybe you're here and you're saying, I I love God. I'm I'm confident in God. I believe what we, we sing and read, and I still feel it. Keep trusting. Keep trusting. Look at verse 31. He says, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. So we get the command a second time. Don't worry, the next two are shorter than the first. But we see this command a second time. Do not be anxious about the length of the sermon. Right? (laughs) Do not be anxious. He wants us to see that putting all of our focus on the things of the world, being consumed with the worries of the world, this is the way that people live who don't know God. Again, it goes back to what we saw last week, that We can fix our eyes on the things of heaven or we can fix our eyes on the things of earth. But to fix our eyes on the things of earth is to choose a different master than God. Jesus brings the same line of reasoning now to worry. If all you focus on is what you need, if everything you focus on is earthly, then you're seeking after the same things the world seeks after. You're worried about the same things that those who don't know God worry about. They fix their mind on the things of earth. They fix their mind on the things they can't control. I'll give another disclaimer. Nothing Jesus has said precludes our efforts, which means this isn't a license for laziness. 
And, and this isn't the let go and let God that many people have made it out to be. The Bible has a lot to say about working hard and planning well and being wise stewards. So don't hear Jesus saying not to try to find solutions to the things we need to find solutions for. But in the working and in the planning and in the stewarding, we trust God. This is the life of faith. We can lay our heads down at night saying, I don't know how it's going to work out. But God does. God knows me and sees me. And he knows what I need. That's what we see in the verse. Your heavenly father, I love, we, we talked at some point about the repetition of the, this heavenly father. We see it over and over in the Sermon on the Mount. Our father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And what he's doing, he's bringing together this reality that we have a God who calls us his children, but he's not a father just like your father, but he's the God of heaven. So the God of heaven is also your father. You might have had a great dad who wanted to give you the world, but he couldn't. But we have a father who is the, the king of, of all things, and he knows what you need. Again, Jesus is raising our gaze. He wants us to see the God who knows and cares. But those who don't know God don't have this assurance, and so they're consumed with seeking the things of the world. I was reminded this week of the parable of the four soils. Do you remember this parable? The farmer goes out throwing seed, and Jesus says there's four different kinds of soils, and they each receive the seed differently. He says it, it demonstrates the, the casting of the gospel, the, the word of God. Luke 8, 14, we read, As for the seed that fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked out by the cares, riches, and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. That word cares, it's the exact same word that's translated anxieties in Matthew 6. He said there's some who receive the word, but that word gets choked out by what? anxieties and riches and pleasures, and their fruit does not mature. What's he saying? Worry kills faith. They're consumed with these things, and it crowds out. It suffocates faith. So Jesus is calling us, don't be like those who are suffocated by their cares and their worries. Trust God. There's also the story of Mary and Martha, these sisters who invite Jesus into their home. This is in Luke chapter 10. We read, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much servings. She went up to Jesus and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. My boys say that. The Lord answered, Martha, Martha, are you anxious and troubled about many things? But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. 
He's helping us see that at times we worry ourselves so much that we miss the main thing. As his people, we are called to seek him. And that's what we see in verse 33, the alternative response. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So much here. First, the acknowledgement that we are always seeking something. We're always pursuing something. And there's also the acknowledgement that there are different levels of things we need to pursue. We will have worldly concerns. We do have bills to pay. There is sickness to be dealt with and kids to raise and an economy to be aware of. But the question is, what is our primary focus? What's the overarching pursuit of our hearts and lives? What gets the most attention and what gets the most weight? He says, seek first the kingdom of God. He's lifting our gaze. He's raising our eyes. Seek first the kingdom. We've seen this language over and over in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus calling his people to live as citizens of the kingdom of God, which means that we pursue the things of God over the things of the world. We love what he loves. We value what he values. We desire what he desires. What's the kingdom of God? It's, it's the rule. It's the reign of God over all things. And we know that he's already king. And this is where that already not yet of the kingdom comes in. He is ruling and reigning, but in the same time, the kingdom is still being advanced in the world as more people are acknowledging his rule and reign. And we're called to be people who, who love the kingdom and long for the kingdom and speak of the kingdom. We go back just a few paragraphs to the Lord's Prayer earlier in this chapter. Jesus says, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this is the heart of a person who's seeking his kingdom. God, bring your kingdom. And this is what we want. And yet what we talked about when we talked about the Lord's Prayer is that when we pray for the kingdom of God to come, that in part is saying, be my king. Rule in my heart. So when we're seeking his kingdom, we're saying, God, I'm in submission to you. You know what happens when we do that? When we see God and acknowledge him as the king, we believe that we can trust him. There's an acknowledgement of his sovereignty and his care. So what we have here, it's a call from Jesus to take our eyes off the things of the world and to turn our eyes to God, to seek his kingdom, to see him as Lord. The psalmist says this in Psalm 27, 8. He says, you have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, Lord, your face do I seek. I think that's how we battle anxiety, right? We confess to the Lord, you have said, seek my face. So here I am, Lord. My heart is seeking you. It's trusting you. He says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Righteousness is something else that we've heard a lot about in the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 6 of chapter 5. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. 
5.20, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. In both these cases, we're being called to be a people who love what's right, who long for God's righteousness. We want to be people who are pleasing to him. And again, this kills anxiety. When we long and pursue the things of God, it changes our priorities. It changes what we see as most important. It changes our perception of our need. Jesus says, seek God's kingdom and his righteousness. And then he goes on. And all these things will be added to you. Another reminder that God cares and provides for those who are his. Remember, the context is is food and clothes. And here we have the promise that God will provide. We can trust his care. Seek him, trust him, he provides. Exactly what we want? Maybe not. Always what we need every time. He is the God of life and we can trust him. He provides for the birds and the flowers and he will give to his people all that we need. And when we doubt God's plan for our life or question his care, we're forgetting who he is. Remember what he says in Romans chapter eight? What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not graciously with him give us all things? Which I think here he's primarily talking about spiritual things, eternal things. But again, we see, if he loved us as much to send his son, and if he's cared for our eternities, know this, you can care for him. You can can trust his care for you today. We've seen two commands so far. The first command was this, do not be anxious. The second command was this, do not be anxious. And now we come to the third and final command. Verse 34. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Here's a temptation. To be anxious about the future, to worry about what's coming to lose sleep over tomorrow. But he says, don't be anxious about tomorrow. And then he gives us the reason. It'll be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And I want to be careful here because we could read this verse simply as something that any smart person could have said. Worry about today, today. Worry about tomorrow, tomorrow. Each day has enough worries of its own. And we could put anybody's name there who said that. But Jesus isn't just a wise philosopher who understands how days work. He's God. And he's speaking as God. He was fully man who knew the troubles of life. And so I think it's important when we read this verse to hear more than fortune cookie wisdom. But to consider what he's saying about himself and about his sovereignty. God is sovereign over each day, and he has promised he will not give us more than we can endure. He has promised that he will give us sufficient grace for each day. 
And while each day will bring difficulties, God says there's grace, there's endurance. So this is more than a helpful proverb that says something true. God himself is telling us, I know tomorrow. You can trust me with tomorrow. And there will be trouble tomorrow. You can trust me. Similar to what we read in Lamentations 3. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul that seeks him. It is good that we should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. I think that's a good summary of what we've seen this morning. We can trust him with today. We can trust him with tomorrow. We can trust him with our eternity. Let me end this way. I want us to consider this quickly. That this passage is more than an antidote to help us live a stress-free life. God forbid that we leave this morning thinking this has been a self Self-help session of some kind? Jesus talking to the people of God and encouraging us to set our eyes on Him and reminding us that apart from Him, we have no hope. Apart from God, we have every reason to worry. Apart from God, we have every reason to fear. And so as we read this passage, we should be thinking... I'm so thankful for Christ, for what he's done to forgive me and to bring me into a right relationship with God. And without him, there's no hope here. We live in a world who knows the weight of anxiety and the weariness of worry. And apart from God, they have no reason for hope. In fact, their fear is legitimate because the worst is coming. Our call is to go to our anxious and worried world and to share with them the only source of hope, the only source of freedom. And this is part of what it means to seek his kingdom first, to proclaim to the world, you don't have to fear. So let's be faithful. Let's trust God and not ourselves. Let's put off worry and let's go and proclaim to the world the salvation they need to hear. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. Let's pray together.